Hello, I'm Gui. I'm a fifth. And I'm Long. And you're listening to Copy Overflow. So today we have we have a guest. <laughs> and I, I think we really went all the way. The first time we have a guest, we got someone like halfway around the globe to join us in. <laughs> but everyone, welcome Mehdi. Mehdi Jonji. Hey, I'm Mehdi. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us halfway around the globe. But yes, so we, we got Mehdi in and well, we say we want to have a chat, but you know, technically we just want to grill him on a site reliability. But yeah, yeah, Mehdi, maybe you can explain why we think you are an authority in uh, site reliability. <laughs> I, I don't think I'm an authority, but I've, I've had experience in this field for like two years at this point. Currently, I work mainly on infrastructure, automations, building internal tools to help service owners be more productive and deliver code and features more efficiently. Yeah. Do, do you want to tell us like how do you get started on this, I guess, road? Yeah, absolutely. So like for the longest of my career, I, I, like, I worked as a service engineer, like building features for customers and so on. Around two years ago, I got my hands on the SRE book from Google. Just going through the book, I was like, huh, this is really interesting. I like, I'd like to make a little career switch and uh, just to see what's on the other side. Like what happens if you build one foot in on operations and the other foot in software engineering and like try to play that role. It was kind of a tricky transition just because you need to have some knowledge in both fields. And like I had to read like a couple of books on how the Linux kernel works. Um, like automations, like how to do infrastructure as code, uh, learning more about public clouds, that sort of thing. And uh, yeah, eventually I managed to get a role as an SRE and it, it's been a fun journey so far. You mentioned mentioned reading the SRE book. I think to anyone not familiar, it's the Blue Site Reliability Engineering book. I think it's available. I think there's a free copy, as in like free HTML pages available online. If anybody search for for it, but obviously that's that's written by Google, right? And they have that that planet spanning infrastructure. Was there any like gap when you got into the role and you feel like oh, there's some things that the book mentioned, but you're actually like not working on that? Maybe you feel that was like a gap there, something like that. I wouldn't say a gap, but more of some topics in the book felt oversimplified than reality. You know, like that expectation versus reality thing where you read something in a book and you're like okay this is easy like we can do it i'm prepared but then when you jump into practice it turns out to be much much more difficult to give you an example the book talks about how to measure failure in a system by using service level indicators and service level objectives and just some background here, a service level indicator is a metric that you collect to measure a thing in your service system, like latency, errors, that sort of thing. And then the objective is when you decide, okay, for like 99% of our customers should have the good experience and only 1% maybe should fail. That's like the kind of thing, like that's, that's an example of an SLA. Now, reading that in the book, you're like, okay, this is simple enough, <laughs> we can do it. But when you actually take a, a live system and you start thinking about what type of SLOs, what type of SLIs you can measure and work with, the reality 
was much, much difficult. For example, what happens on the weekends when you don't have that much traffic and some errors just become, you, you don't have enough volume to generate like meaningful metrics from that. Another example is what happens if you have seasonality in, like in your metrics? Maybe you have a thing that only happens once every couple of hours, but it's very important to measure for the business and that sort of scenarios. Like it's, it's been somewhat challenging, like establishing is meaningful SLOs in practice. With the seasonality thing, that could be like if it's an e-commerce site, they'll definitely get more traffic during holiday seasons and stuff like that. And if you're doing different nature of business, it requires different thing. You talk about all these SLOs and like indicators and objectives. Would it necessarily always be kind of like a site reliability's engineer's responsibility? Or because I feel like some of these performance-related things might be overlapping with a software engineer role. Like, of course, when they write deliver features or write codes, I think performance would be one of, probably one of the acceptance criterias. Really great question. I think a good SLO is not related to, to ops as in latency errors, that kind of thing. Instead, a good SLO should be something meaningful to the business, like... 90% of users who went through the e-commerce checkout workflow were able to fully make the purchase and have a, have a good experience, that kind of thing. And you really can't come up with, with that type of SLO unless you have domain knowledge in the business. You know exactly what's important for, for the business in general and what, what sort of things you can measure to indicate whether, whether the business is doing well or not at some point in time. And the folks with that experience are usually the service owners themselves and the product managers. Uh, so it takes some kind of collaboration between the two to, to have an SLO that, that helps engineers know whether the recent code change that they sent into production, did it break the checkout flow or did, did the checkout flow like do better now? That, that type of thing. Aside from that, I think the SRE role would, in this scenario would be how can we give engineers the tools to help them measure alert and monitor the slos and, and like fix the common problem from that perspective the engineers just become like just have to focus on what are the slos are we doing good where and when did it break and and if it gets break someone gets notified to fix the system that's that's very interesting because what you mentioned like how you have the SLO related to the business objective. That's actually very familiar with what this hard framework that's also actually from Google about uh, how to measure the UX of, of your software or products. The H-E-A-R-T-T stands for task success and um, you would break it down into a goal, a signal and a metrics. You would go back, going back to the example just now, it would be like how many users successfully check out an item, right? I was wondering, like, maybe for SRO, does the SRE have to correlate that metrics to certain other data or analytics that you work on day-to-day, -day, maybe, like, some site-ups time? I, I think from an SRE perspective, it's as a general guidance, it's really important to measure everything. For, for example, you know exactly when a code was pushed into production and you can correlate that code with a change in one of the SLIs that 
measure like that that you're using in the SLO. You only set up the alert on the SLO as in don't wake up someone at 2 a.m. if the SLO is still doing good, <laughs> like that kind of thing. And when someone gets alerted, they can take a look at the SLO and go, oh, okay, something bad is going on. I wonder what's going, what's happening here. And then they can take another step and start looking at all the metrics that, that we're collecting and measuring. Like they can look at why is the SLO doing bad? Is it because the latency suddenly increased or is it because we have a lot of errors that, that, that are happening on the back end and they are resulting in 500 errors from the user perspective? And then they can take the next step and say, oh, was there a recent code change? So they can take a look at maybe every time there is a deployment, you emit a new event that says deployment happened here. And this is the git commit that was pushed into production. And by looking at all these metrics, like an informed decision to restore the system back into a healthy state. Nice. The correlation patterns. Very interesting. I, I want to get into slightly meatier things. <laughs> so, so, so you mentioned, you mentioned like that there are all these SLO indicators and objectives that you are tracking, right? And this is going to sound a bit winding, but it kind of want to reach to the point which is, you, you mentioned that, okay, we're monitoring all these objectives and someone will be paged and all that sort of thing. So this kind of draws on, is this a responsibility of the site reliability team to receive the page and act on this? Or is it part of the software engineers team to handle this? And I guess the media question would be, how does this fit in, or maybe not fit in the, the death ops quote-unquote model <laughs> getting into the real hairy business here <laughs> <laughs> oh boy yeah i think like in a devops culture you want to eliminate silos between the organizational departments that make the organization in this in, in this sense you want to eliminate the silos between folks who work in ops and those who work in software and even like those folks who are doing the QA and, and so on. And the, the, the problem here is in a typical siloed structure where a service engineer just is responsible for building a feature and their roles ends the moment they have an artifact that they can hand off to the operations team who is responsible for deploying that artifact on infrastructure that they own. And in a traditional culture, they are the ones on call when this infrastructure sort of breaks. The problem here is like 90% of incident, I don't know, like I'm just making a, a fictional number here, like, but a large number of incidents are a result of a code change. It's not a result of infrastructure change that, that resulted that. And, and that's, I think, where the classical on-call alert where you have an ops person who wakes up at night because the the CSS on the web page broke due to some reason. Like, it just doesn't make sense. I'm, I, an ops person did not make that change and will we'll, we'll spend a lot of time debugging around to figure out what exactly is driving the alarm or the bad experience for the user versus the person who just wrote the code can take a look at what's going on and say, oh, oh yeah, like that, uh, that's... I know why this is breaking. It's because the change that we pulled, that we pushed an hour ago, uh, resulted in a bad experience, and they can take the necessary steps to, to fix the problem. The, the problem here is that it would it takes a, lo a very long time to recover from an incident 
when the wrong people are notified and and, the, and that's what we're trying to fix here does that mean a service like a software engineer or a service owner like should be notified for all problems maybe not it really depends on which components they own and that's like the the, the keyword here ownership you get notified for the components that you own if maybe there's a, a problem in the network layer on the VPC side, it would make sense to notify the operations folks first and not the service owners. But if there's a problem with the 500 errors with maybe a broken UI and so on, then perhaps we should notify the service engineers. Sounds like the monitoring and even the alerting system would have some complexity there to decide like who, who to reach out to in case of incidents or maybe the, the thought is like you could separate out different well I was going to say separate out different SLOs but you mentioned that SLOs are tied to business objectives already so I guess with the business objective it will notify like appropriate teams like you say right the ownership which team actually owns owns it yeah and, and like another thing like we're in this together so the person on call is not like just the only person who, who has to fix all the problems. If they feel like, oh, this seems like a problem on the networking side, and um, I don't know what to look at here. They have a, a well-defined process that allows them to bring in another person who, who has the expertise to debug this problem. And that's where the on-call process will come into play. Okay, well, we're almost ending the first quarter of the year. So how many times have you been caught? <laughs> if you don't mind sharing. <laughs> so my team is not... We kind of don't have that many infrastructure components that we maintain. Like we maintain internal tools for the engineers that they, they use. But we do, we're not on call if someone's service breaks. They can... If if they feel like, huh, this is like an, an like a really weird thingy in AWS and I need help from someone who knows AWS, they can reach out for help and we assist them. To answer your question, zero. <laughs> zero times. <laughs> can can I like challenge on the concept of what you brought up about the DevOps culture? Like in the ideal world I guess dev and ops are not separated. We're not in the ideal world. A lot of cases they are separated, but you're talking about like breaking down the silo. Does it mean like your goal is to have dev and mobs completely integrated? Like that's there shouldn't be a dev ops dedicated teams because all dev do ops. Because that sounds like a bit different from what the structure you have, where you guys have like a ops teams and then I mean not ops team, sorry team, sorry, <laughs> and then there's a bunch of service owners right they don't really have to care about ops in a way okay so i i think the the challenge here is we're asking folks to know i don't know hypothetically speaking ruby on rails they should know how to build like front ends with react.js they should know how to build an automation for their pipeline they should know how to deliver that into production they should know how to build infrastructure, like the, the hosts that are going to run the application and operate it. And then like you have databases, you have all these things. Just the scope itself is really big. At some point, it's too much for a single person to do it. 
by themselves, like or a single team to do it by themselves without some sort of specialization where someone at least needs to, to have some in-depth knowledge in infrastructure side of things. One way to solve this problem is like to go like really assign roles. You are responsible for the infrastructure and you are responsible for the rails and you are responsible for the pipelines and so on. But that's creating silos. That has been proven not to work so well. What if we had folks who work on the infrastructure side, but they build tools and automations that allow the Rails experts to deliver the artifact into, into a well thought out and set up environment that can handle the production traffic and so on. So what happened here is that you have folks who are building kind of internal tools and providing these as services for the other teams to use. That's kind of a good balance where you sort of broken down most of the silos and you still have like, you're, you're not asking folks to know all there is to know about networking, hosts, how to manage Linux servers and all of that. But you can influence their process and tools to make things better. Well, what I have tend to observe, building on what you mentioned earlier, Mehdi, right? Having a dedicated team that handles infrastructure. What I tend to observe is that the silo will appear in, in the form of the interaction between the teams. Um, you talked about the whole team earlier, right? Where, you know, within one team, there are people working on the back end, the front end, the infra and their tooling. And we split those off into more dedicated teams handling a, a specific domain. What, what I have observed is that sometimes these more specific teams, like for example, the site reliability team, ends up being siloed and people just approach them for ops-related stuff. Like, hey, what's the IP address we are using? I need to submit this for compliance, etc., etc. Or, hey, this thing is slow. <laughs> what's the infrastructure like? I think especially when suddenly infrastructure is only accessible by within this dedicated team, is that kind of the model they're referring to, or actually this is something else or that you have in mind? I think what you described works well. Like there's a category of work someone still needs to do. Someone still needs to know like the IP address where the egress traffic goes out from for, for compliance things and so on. And, and, and you have all these like really somewhat smallish tasks that require just manual intervention or requires Someone will, will, will raise their hand, they say, hey guys, I'm having a performance issue. I think it's part of the platform. Someone from the ops sides will need to look into it. First thing, automate as much as possible so that your customers can unblock themselves without asking for help directly. Maybe the person who's looking for these IP addresses can find them in a wiki page in, in a, internally that gets automatically updated whenever the IPs change, that sort of thing. Self-service. Self-service, yeah. The second thing is, Okay, we've automated all of everything that we can, but we still have few things that we can't automate. Well, then let's have kind of an on-call where the SRA team has a supporting role and like there's an on-call for this role and it changes maybe every week where someone from the team is not expected to work on all the glorious automations or the internal tools that the team is working on, but they are rather just playing the supporting role during this one-week period where they help everyone who has a question. I think this model somewhat works for my team or has worked so far, but we're always looking out for, let's ask our customers for feedback. Like when you work with us, where do you feel blocked? And if there is like one reoccurring 
question that we always get in the support ticket, then maybe this is a chance to automate that, that type of issues into a self-service tool that folks can use. In that world, slowly you will be reducing these silos, but you can't really eliminate them at all. That's, that's what I've seen so far. It, it does sound like actually the, the model that the SRA team you are in actually sounds like a product team. You're talking to your customers, which are technically other developers within the organization right? and then getting their feedback. And basically how a normal product team will interact with external or paying customers. Just that your target customers are actually people that are using the infrastructure to host their, their service. At least that's how I interpret it. Really great point. Every quarter, we put on our product hats and we just like start working on our own roadmap. Like we don't have a technical product manager that tells us what to do. Instead, like we have based on the based on the support tickets we got the past quarter, based on the feedback we've been getting, how can we improve and what sort of components is the organization missing that we can work on in the next quarter? And we go through this cycle of planning every quarter. For the entire year, we know we have like the really big goals that we work on, but we iterate every quarter. And sometimes that's really like the big goals change where we realize, oh, that item that we really thought was important based on what people have been telling us is not anymore. <laughs> and another thing that we do is we build surveys and we send them out at the end of each quarter where we ask folks, hey, what do you think of this new tool that we delivered half a year ago and you've been using since then? Is there anything else you like? What's the good? What's the bad? What's the ugly? Give us the feedback and like, let's iterate on this the second quarter. So and I think that's like something we have a lot in common with how the software lifecycle works. Like you. Yeah, it's a, it's a user research. Yeah, exactly. And like, there's another thing where you work on a problem, you, you try to time scope it into like something you can deliver in a, in a quarter wait for a little bit for customers to use it, get the feedback, iterate, and repeat. <laughs> you're, you're doing a lot of work, so sometimes it can be overwhelming if you're not mentally prepared for it, but it's rewarding in the long term when, when you see that, oh, that automation that you built a year ago has saved, organizationally speaking, so many hours by, by eliminating a repetitive task that everyone was doing. Sounds like a good SRE also make a good product manager. <laughs> From the sound of what we're discussing right now, there seems to be a lot of things you can automate. Do you feel like maybe sometimes there's not enough automation yet? Something like, wait, we're not building enough yet. We, we need the robots to take all our job away. <laughs> <laughs> can you automate like the code writing part? Okay, say that you have a task that you only do once a year and it takes a day to finish versus a task that you do once a week, but it only takes five minutes or 10 minutes to finish. Like, and then like you start looking into these types of problems and you're like, huh, which one of these is worth the investment and yields the most uh, reward at the end? You know, the... XKCD, I don't know how to, like, you know that, like, comic thingy? Right, right, SKCD, yeah. Uh -huh. SKCD. They have this, like, <laughs> they have this comic where how, how often do you do something and how much time would you save if you were to automate it? And then, like, you can use that to see, oh, okay, this is something I do a lot that takes very little time. 
versus something you do infrequently but takes a longer time. There's kind of a balance where you can choose, pick and choose which things are worth the investment or not. Is saving two minutes from the CI/CD pipeline worth a one-week investment versus, you know, something else? And, and if, if this is a service you deploy multiple times per day, perhaps it's worth the investment, even though it's only two minutes. That is a hard question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in my current team also, we kind of had this problem also with one of our stuff and yeah it is really hard to kind of come up with the right justification for these kind of automations yeah i guess it's a daily thing for you <laughs> i don't know <laughs> we should hire sre to justify all our automations like they came out all the numbers that's like a pipeline specialist <laughs> Because automation is not just thinking about the benefits or the cost-benefit cost ratio, right? Cost is in like the time and effort spent. Because there's another piece after that to maintain, right? The automation program or process or whatever, that is a piece of software that we need to maintain as well. Like, should you build an internal tool or versus should you purchase a subscription to a SaaS that delivers the same thing? Maybe the SaaS approach is costing you money every every month or so on but you don't have anything to maintain in the long term versus building something internal and over time you probably will have people maintaining it if, if not adding features to it they are at least responsible for keeping it alive and running for everyone it's like should you use kubernetes versus like fargate or whatever that's some managed service <laughs> Oh, did you bring up the K word? <laughs> <laughs> what, what are you talking about? I thought people always just go for Kubernetes. That's how we host our blogs, you know? <laughs> <laughs> just in case one day my, I get like a million visitors a, a seconds for my blog, you know? Just, just in case. <laughs> yeah, auto skills and everything. <laughs> well... I mean, technically, you can still autoscale your blog on like on on a public cloud of your choice using their like proprietary tools. Yeah. <laughs> you mean I shouldn't have spent all the time configuring YAML for my blog? Okay, fine. YAML wizards. <laughs> Professional YAML wizards. Earlier, you mentioned when getting into this field, you read the book and diving in to it. That's a huge surface area of learning right there. But, but now that, you know, reflecting back, if someone junior would ask you, not, not just junior, like whoever, they say you know, they have some experience in software engineering or even maybe a fresh graduate, say that, hey, I want to break into the site reliability engineering discipline. What would you recommend them to start off with? Maybe understanding the Linux kernel might be too far, too big of a deal, but like what, what are the baby steps to get there? So you need to have one foot in ops and one foot in software engineering world. So... Start by building maybe a simple API service, like a REST service or something uh, in a language of your, of, in a high level language, like Java or Rails or Ruby or something. The next thing that try to think about how can you deploy that into like the internet and make it accessible from the internet somehow, preferably by just like don't use any abstractions, like just on pure VM deployment. 
but that will give you a chance to tinker around with servers, see like the configurations, how they work. And of course, read about the best practices in this field. Like you don't want your system to be hackable by some automated tool that somebody built. Once you have that in place, try to think about how can I make changes to my demo service and have these changes automatically deployed into production. So like start thinking about CI, CD component of things and like automating that. And then like once you have that in place, okay, how can I, in the future, when my system goes down, like how can I figure out what's the current internal state of my blog or my REST API and so on. So start thinking about monitoring, alerting, observability. And yeah, it's like these small components, learn a thing from each one of these fields in general, and eventually you will just put them together and that's it. It does sound like having several, at least some mid-level software engineering knowledge would be very, very helpful because as you mentioned earlier, like part of your work is actually building services as well for other teams, right? So I definitely feel like from what you mentioned earlier that you know, having at least few years of, well, maybe time is not a very good indicator of experience, but definitely some experience in, in software engineering would, would help a lot. Yeah, I was going to say, absolutely. The thing is, if you work somewhere where they happen to be fully in on a public cloud, the operations chunk of work is kind of like distilled it by so much because you, you don't have to build something that auto-scales your servers yourself and think about like, like the physical hosts and the capacity planning because you're on a public cloud. You can, you, you can use with something else that someone at AWS has already built and you can like leverage that abstraction. So public cloud helps a lot. <laughs> it's good that you point out as well, right? Because we do have maybe a preset notion that site reliability just focuses on interacting with, with public cloud. I don't think that's the case, right? There are organizations out there who that run their own data center and probably have their own site reliability team that builds their own services to manage these physical servers and all that kind of thing. I think we do have tooling, like a lot of tooling available for that as well. Yeah, uh, well, Google has site reliability engineers, and like they, they, <laughs> so they, of course, right? <laughs> don't don't they just use GCP? <laughs> <laughs> I thought they use their own cloud. <laughs> but yeah, their, their their own cloud team would definitely have their own sets of site reliability engineering team, which handles that level of abstraction. I don't. Know, do we have anything else to talk about? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not an SRE, so I can... That's the whole idea, right? If you're not an SRE, you probably have questions about SRE. Yeah, I do I do think like some of the things that you mentioned is kind of similar in many other kinds of specialization you could do within the software engineering. Your, your focus is breaking down the silos and you still want to focus on the business objective. You probably like want to be the bridge between software development and your specializations, be it a SRE or a designed. But is there anything that you would think that's very unique to SRE that specializing in other things most likely not going to run into? Like that one thing about SRE. Is SRE necessary for every organization? Is that your question or did I misunderstand it? I think my question is more like SRE is a specialization, right? 
from software engineering in, in a way. What was unique about SRE as a specialization compared to other sub specializations? Got it. Your customer is not someone on the other side of the world who's trying to access your system from an end user's perspective, but rather it's other engineers in your organization. And one thing that I find is really important for an SRE is given that if, if you happen to have the software engineering background, it's very easy to empathize uh, with the fellow engineers in your organization. If someone says, hey guys, like you, you know that thing you added where you yanked my, all my production permissions from the databases and such, yeah, I can't do my job anymore that I used to. <laughs> you need to have empathy with that rather than say, yeah, yeah you, you can't do it because of compliance. Instead, like, if you know the problem you and you're able to empathize, it's much easier to start thinking about, okay, like, I understand what's going on here. How can I provide workarounds uh, like that satisfies both the compliance requirement as well as I don't want to block someone from doing their work. And like, it's so easy to do that. Like, it's so easy to find these pains because your customer is just sitting right, well, prior to 2020, your customer was sitting maybe next to you or like at least they, they were with you in the same office. So you can, you can talk with them and understand what, what are their pains. Oh yeah, yeah. That perspective on being easily empathize with your quote unquote customers. I think it's, it's, it's very unique. I think a lot of times like engineers working on their product don't always use the product they work on. Maybe many other reasons. Maybe it's B2B, maybe it's something that just wouldn't utilize. This rem reminds me of 2G Tuesday at Facebook. I'm not sure if they're still doing that where they have to use Facebook on 2G connection every Tuesday. <laughs> that, that shows how important it is to empathize with whoever you are helping with, engineers, customers. I had a misconception, I guess, about this SLO. So I, I thought it's always around like, oh, 99% uptime or something like that. I was intrigued when, when you mentioned that, oh, it's really business specific. Like 90% of users can check out. That's the kind of SLO that we're looking at. And it feels more meaningful rather than all those like if your site is up but then people cannot check out then it doesn't make sense for the business anyway so yeah that's that's a really good eye-opener i never thought that the slos are defined like that as someone who's not experienced with sre <laughs> basically the customer of the sre team is actually the developers in your company the, the end goal is still towards the business because of these SLOs that you, that you guys define, just interesting. Helping engineers to build more reliable software ultimately contribute to customer experience. Yeah, definitely. I'm more interested in SRE now. <laughs> Are you inspired to be an SRE now, <laughs> Afif? <laughs> yeah, I mean, within our team as well, also, right? Current team that I am in, we kind of build internal tools as well just to kind of automate stuff so i guess we are actually halfway there kind of it's just that we are not familiar with all these like slos and alerts and stuff 
I mean, at least for my team, we don't have services, so <laughs> we we don't have alerts and stuff, I guess. <laughs> yeah, we're just shipping jar files. <laughs> I think we can we can wrap up. Very very insightful inputs from you, Maddie, helping us understand whole SRE engineering. And really, for me, the takeaway from this is. Sounds like SRE is pretty much a, a product engineering team. Except, you know, like Afif mentioned, and I think everybody mentioned multiple times that your customer, your users are practically the engineering team, the developers inside an organization. It's very good that you can easily empathize with your users because you were once there. <laughs> Maybe they are like evil SREs. <laughs> it's like, no, no access, nope. <laughs> your CI will randomly crash just on purpose. Chaos engineering, right? (laughs) (laughs) Like, send fake alerts to your pager duty or something. (laughs) That's evil SREs. (laughs) Evil SREs. Let's let's wrap up. Medi, do you want to do any (laughs) self-promotion? Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn. (laughs) My name is Mehdi Zonji. Thank you for having me. And and for clues, it looks like certain very famous <laughs> artists <laughs> celebrities <laughs> he's practically a bit diesel standable <laughs> if anyone is imagining how many looks like but yes this is copy overflow follow us on our twitter we are available on youtube spotify google podcast for podcasts Mandy, we usually say one thing to to end the episode which is don't let your copy overflow so will you do the honors on ending ending this episode Absolutely. Hey, don't let your copy overflow. <laughs> Yay! Thanks, Melly. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>